This is the EPLOG audio experience. Film is clearly a sophisticated art, possibly the most important art of the 20th century with a rather complex history of theory and practice, writes James Monaco in his book How to Read a Film. So far in our podcast, The Artists, we have had filmmakers, writers, critics, programmers from some of the top film festivals, musicians, thinkers, defining their combinatorial skills. We at Metaphysical Lab have been striving to expand the realm of our podcast, which in turn gives a wider uh, canvas to the understanding of our experiences. And also we have tied up with Epilogue Media, the podcasting network. So you can find us on their website, epilogmedia.com the artist and of course you can continue to listen to us on the platforms that you choose from apple podcast to spotify to geosavon to google podcast everything is mentioned in the description and of course you can reach us uh, on the whatsapp number and our email id i'm your host suchita and i'm looking forward to a wonderful journey ahead with all of you As we approach uh, Kishlovsky's birthday on June 27th, I feel more and more connected to his work and specifically the metaphysical and the spiritual dimensions. And so we have the good fortune to have Professor Anit Insdorf uh, on this podcast episode of The Artists with me. Suchita, enjoy this very, very important conversation. Anit Insdorf is a professor of film studies at Columbia University's School of the Arts and moderator of the popular Real Pieces series at Manhattan's 92Y, where she has interviewed over 300 film celebrities. She's the author of the landmark study, Indelible Shadow. Shadows, film and the Holocaust, Double Lives, Second Chances, The Cinema of Christoph Krzyzlowski, Frank Oz through for a study of the French director's work, Philip Kaufman and Intimations, The Cinema of What Chish Has, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. You can check that out on the internet. And her latest book is Cinematic Overtures, How to Read Opening Scenes, currently in its fourth printing. Hello, Dr. Instoff. Welcome to our podcast, The Artist. And thank you for joining in. Thank you for taking our time. Such an honor, such a privilege to have you on our podcast, talking about the great Kishlowski. And we are truly, truly, truly grateful. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You have known Kishlowski intimately in terms of his work. You were his translator. You wrote a book on him. Would you like to talk a bit about what what he was as a person and a bit about how he saw the world. Sure. I was hmm. incredibly fortunate that I got to know Kishlovsky as a human being, in addition to admiring his work as a filmmaker and trying to uh, popularize and make accessible his work through my book, Double Lives, Second Chances, the Cinema of Krzysztof Kishlovsky. I met him around uh, 1980, when his film Camera Buff was presented at the New York Film Festival. 
and they needed a last minute translator. And even though my Polish was not fluent, my parents were born in Poland and I grew up speaking the language but never learned how to speak it properly in a classroom. They brought me in at the last minute. I translated for him. And I was really taken with this extremely modest Polish artist. And then during the 1980s at the Cannes Film Festival and the Telluride Film Festival, um, I was constantly asked to translate for him as well. And we became friends by the late 1980s. He also got to know my mother, um, an extraordinary woman who had been a survivor of the Holocaust and never wanted to go back to Poland after her terrible experiences. Um, And he convinced her to come to Poland with me to show (laughs) me where she grew up. So that's in Poland. And we went in 1989. That's when I got to know Kieślowski a little bit better as a human being. Um, I learned that he had a terrific, dry sense of humor. You know, in his films, you do not get that much of a comic vision of the world unless it's darkly comic, like the 10th Decalogue segment of the two brothers who inherit their father's stamp collection. But his films have a seriousness of purpose and process. Um, But when I was with him and I met his wife, uh, we went out to dinner. We took, my mother and I took a bunch of these wonderful people to dinner at the Hotel Victoria restaurant in Warsaw. It was Kieślowski and his wife, Agnieszka Holland. Um, And that's where we got to know Zbigniew Preisner, the extraordinarily talented composer of all of Kieślowski's films beginning with no end. And even though I would say Kieślowski was extremely modest, self-effacing, and presented to the world a kind of, um, I don't know, shall we say, somebody who was kind of easy about his place in the world. He really didn't care. He had no vanity. Um, But he was aware of the increasing admiration internationally for his work. And I think that it gave him a certain serenity and ability to let go because he announced after Three Colors Red that he would make no more films. And then, you know, he died within a few years uh, from heart failure during an operation. Um, But his outlook on the world, I would call it very Polish. And by that, I mean, it was ironic, skeptical, non-didactic. Um, aware of the frustrations and the fallibility of human beings in daily life. Because don't forget, Poland was under the communist yoke until 1989. He grew up under communism and saw all of the hypocrisy, bureaucracy. And yet, even though his first documentaries that he made, they were all short films when he was at the Lodz Film School and after he graduated, the documentary He's really chronicled his immediate world. But after that, he moved completely into fiction filmmaking and became what I consider one of the greatest cinematic poets of the late 20th century because he evolved a style that was so rich in tone, in suggestivity. Um, He used better than almost any other director I know the objects of our daily world to suggest something beyond it, a metaphysical or spiritual dimension. That's really hard to pull off in mainstream films, but I believe that he consistently did so. 
Yes, 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 absolutely, ma'am. So, of course, blue, white, and red, uh, and the Decalogue, uh, the whole series, which I saw 10 years back, stayed something inside me. It was this emotional and intellectual balance in his films. But also the fact that the three the, the three films, Blue, White, and Red, they were shot, edited, written simultaneously in a span of 10 months. And, of course, we lost him after after that. And you met him around that time, and he was shooting. How was How was that? that whole the whole atmosphere of his you know when he was shooting and when he was editing and writing i mean it it just it's just so inspiring thinking about how he was doing it it will come as no surprise to you and your listeners that kishlovsky was exhausted mm-hmm. when i saw him in paris at the time that he was simultaneously editing blue um, shooting white and in pre-production on red, if I remember wow. correctly. My mother and I took him out to dinner at uh, a French, famous French bistro called La Coupole, if I remember correctly. Mm. And he ordered steak tartare. And my mother shot him a glance like, really? You're going to eat raw meat? <laughs> and he, he kind of shooed away the question saying, I eat this all the time. It's good for me. I need the energy. And we proceeded to tell him, my mother and I, that we were concerned that he was looking and sounding so fatigued. And was he not overworking himself by doing all this simultaneous work? He acknowledged it, but he felt driven. He somehow felt that he had to work at this pace. Of course, 25 years after his death, this leads us to wonder what came first. Did he have some awareness deep down that he didn't have long to live mm. and there was packing everything in as fast as he could for this trilogy or the other way around. Was it that he drove himself so relentlessly professionally without sleep that it may have cost him his health, that maybe it endangered his health because he was not taking good care of himself. Obviously, mm can't answer that question. It's all speculative. But my mother and I were concerned about him. We were similarly concerned when we spoke to him on the telephone. uh, This would have been in 1996, when he told us that he was going to be going for heart surgery. And he said that he was going to his hospital in Warsaw. My mother and I begged him not to do so because we feared that the hospital in Warsaw might not be as sophisticated for bypass surgery as hospitals in Paris, New York, or Geneva, all of which he could have traveled to for medical care. And I remember him his saying in his extremely typically modest way, no, no, I'm an ordinary Pole and <laughs> I have confidence, I have confidence in my Polish doctors, you know, I'm I'm I want to stay here. And from what I understand from close friends of his in Poland, it was a kind, I mean, he knew he had to have surgery, but it was elective. Apparently he drove himself to the hospital that day for the surgery. Um, And the surgery took place. But if I am to believe what I was told, um, he never really woke up from the operation. He was in the ICU for a long time and then was pronounced dead. It was reported as a heart attack, but it was in the opinion of at least two of his close friends, more like botched heart surgery for the simple reason 
that the hospital was not accustomed to the needs that that operation had. Mm, such a huge loss, huge, huge loss as we approach his birthday on June 27th. In fact, I just happened to see his film Double Life of Veronique and I was fortunate because in India it's it's very rare that it's not easy to get world cinema. And it's just recently the whole the whole the whole thing, the whole norm has started that world cinema has started pouring to to a place like India and without without looking for it or without torrenting it, you know, getting it and pirated. So the whole the way of his of his films, they're not structured. It's 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 it can get very intangible. And of course there is a strong philosophy and poetical angle to it, and there is also the strong meta parallel universe. Uh, which of course he has, he was seeing it, and that's why he felt it, and that's why he put it in his films. Would you, would you sort of like talk talk about how he wrote his films? Did he write it in details? Anything about the way his whole process of making films? Sure. Um, and one name that must be invoked immediately, his co-writer Krzysztof Kiesiewicz. That's P is in Paul, I E S I E W I C Z. Kiesiewicz, who was originally a lawyer um, and first collaborated with Kieślowski on the fiction feature No End, became the most intimate collaborator on everything that followed, meaning the Decalogue, which, by the way, was Kiesiewicz's original idea, mm-hmm. and The Double Life of Veronique and Three Colors, Blue, White, Red. That was one of the richest screenwriting collaborations that I know of. Now, so it starts with that. You mentioned the words structure and metaphysical. I mean, there are, there are a lot <laughs> you can unpack, and I know we don't have much time, but I do love yes. The Double Life of Veronique. I have presented that film in countless venues, at least wow. in New York. And my students are not just dazzled, but deeply moved by mm-hmm. this film. It speaks to people today, as well as when it was made, you know, uh, somewhat, 30 years ago. So first, Kieślowski started the way I think many great artists must, mm-hmm. with structure. In other words, he and Piesiewicz would sit down and hammer out a script that would have a trajectory that would delineate the key characters, the key beats in the dramatic movement of, let's say, the story of Veronika in part one in Poland the story of Veronique in part two in France, both played, of course, by the glorious Irene Jacob. Um, And they had that screenplay. But once they were on the set, and again, like most great film directors, Kieślowski allowed for intuitive moments, for improvisatory moments, for something that suddenly happened that had not been foreseen. Um, that's in the great tradition of, let's say, Jean Renoir, one of my favorite directors who made Grand Illusion and Rules of the Game, yes. um, o- open to the fortuitous happenstance that the world can offer. So th- that would be the shooting process where something new would enter the picture. But what was Kieślowski's favorite part of filmmaking? Editing. Post-production. He told me on many occasions that it was in the editing room that the film finally took shape in a real way. Because that's where he realized that something that had been in the script didn't quite work. 
that something that took place while they were shooting did work, but not necessarily where it was planned. Um, he was uh, very often tinkering with the openings of his films, adding to the beginning something that was never in the script, that hadn't been shot at the beginning. It would be very often a flash forward to a later moment in the film, like Three Colors White. Um, instead of beginning with Karol, the Polish hairdresser, about to enter the court in Paris, mm. he begins with a suitcase yeah. moving yeah. on a conveyor belt yeah. in yeah. an airport. And he knew that if he began that way instead of the way the script begins, it would perk something in the viewer, something anticipatory. Like we would say, why am I watching a suitcase moving through, you know, something before I meet the character? Well, a few minutes later, I don't know, 15 minutes later, when you see the suitcase on the conveyor belt as Karol is yeah. being physically smuggled back into Poland in a large suitcase, you go, oh, yeah, I saw that at the beginning. Mm. In other words, you don't even necessarily say it consciously, but subconsciously, there has already been a sense of something that was inscribed, something that already happened at the beginning of the film. That has a philosophical suggestivity. In other words, that everything we see in the film has already transpired as if destiny is at play. That's one way of interpreting it, although you don't have to look at it that way. Um, but it certainly makes the viewer more engaged in how the film unfolds. Um, and with Double Life of Veronique, um, there are two other major figures, well, three actually, that I have to invoke before we give Kishlovsky complete credit for anything that takes place beautifully in the film. One is the composer Zbigniew Preisner. He composed the score for The Double Life of Veronique even before shooting began. The score, and it, it, this is also true for Three Colors, Blue, right, White, Red, mm. I call it a pretext. <laughs> now, I, I have that's a double meaning. Um, it is a pretext in the sense that the written musical score precedes the shooting, mm. but it's also um, a pretext. The music is a pretext for the story. Yes. Um, excuse for Veronica to be a singer, so to speak. Mm. Um, that music is so haunting mm. from the very beginning of the double life of Veronique to this day. My students and I, you know, da da da. <laughs> I mean, this gorgeous melody that is not typical and it characterizes the emotional trajectory of both Veronica and Veronique. So we have speaking of Preisner, then I have to invoke Slavomir Ijak, I-Z-I-A-K. He was the cinematographer for The Double Life of Veronique, as well as Three Colors Blue. And wow. he, he worked so collaboratively and deeply. By the way, he also shot Decalogue Number no. 5 and a short film about killing. Mm -hmm. um, they worked together frequently, and he was great with filters, creating a visual tone that differs in each of these films. Um, and finally, how can we not talk about Irene Jacob? Now, mm. certainly, Piesiewicz and Kishlovsky did not write 
this group directly for her. They did not know her. And many, many actresses were auditioned. But what a great choice Kishlovsky made because Irene Jacob is herself as a human being, warm, open, vibrant, generous, in a way that informs every scene of that film. So no surprise that a few years later, when he wrote Three Colors Red with Kiesiewicz, it was directly for Irene Jacob. It was oh. written for her because he knew what her character is, what her temperament is. He knew, and he, by the way, said this in interviews, that if she in real life ran over a dog accidentally with her car, she would stop and she would take that dog and put it into her car and get it help. Uh, he said, no matter how great an actress Juliette Binoche is in mm. Blue and she wouldn't stop. She wouldn't hold that dog and put it in a car. <laughs> you know, he, <laughs> you know, each person has a different range of possible behavior. Mm. And Irene Jacob literally incarnates. She doesn't just play Veronique. She incarnates Veronique. And no surprise that she won the Best Actress Prize at the Cannes Film Festival that year. <clears throat> Even though she was hardly known to international audiences, she had learned Polish to play Veronika and then became Veronique. Not all that different, you know, the two women, they, they're very similar in appearance and behavior, mm. um, but she was utterly convincing as this luminous character. Yes, yes, absolutely. Marvelous. That, that, that's gorgeous, ma'am. Because you have been through four and, you know, Kishlowski and you've written books on both of them. If you would like to say a couple of things in terms of what triggers a person's creativity or the story ideas that a filmmaker gets. And if you would like to sort of point out some similarities between the two greats that you had the good fortune to know and interact with. Well, I, I was certainly, I was certainly very fortunate uh, with with Truffaut. It's it's just that I had been asked to write a book about his work. It was my very first published book, and I contacted him, and he was so gracious. This was in the era before email, before faxes, everything. <laughs> yes, handwritten letters back and forth. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I got to know him, uh, very similar in a way to Kishlovsky, Truffaut was a bit shy modest, self-effacing, obsessed with filmmaking. That was his life. Um, but when he got to know me and, and others better, he could be so warm and charming and funny, so funny. This is like, you know, surprising, I think, to many people that the serious filmmakers who in their interviews, you know, seem to be um, uh, grave <laughs> in mm. real life. If they felt comfortable with you, they really let go with a lot of wonderful humor. And of course, the, the, the horrible comparison between the two is that they died so young, both in their early 50s. And, yeah. you know, a brain tumor in the case of Truffaut, the heart failure in terms of Kishlovsky. But I try to remind myself always that each one created a body of work so rich and so enduring Mm -hmm. that, you know, th th their names are still very well known today. So in both cases, I was their translator. In Truffaut's case, 
after writing the book about him, in Kishlovsky's case, before writing the book about him. And I think the origins of their art are different because for Truffaut, it was personal. He was a product or he was a creator of the French New Wave, yeah. a more personal, a more personal approach to filmmaking that mm -hmm. began essentially late 50s, early 60s, where lightweight equipment made it possible for young French filmmakers to shoot more intimate, improvisatory, spontaneous movies. And The 400 Blows is, of course, based on his own early life. So there's a personal dimension in many of Truffaut's films that have to do with obsession with women. Um, the tone can be very quirky and there's a focus on language as crucial to the evolution of a human being, which is why the wild child is a poignant exploration of someone who does not have the skill of language. With Kishlovsky, it was quite different. Mm -hmm. um, unlike Truffaut, he attended film school, uh, the, the famous Lodge Film School in Poland. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. Um, and by the way, the same school from which you have the graduates like Andrzej Wajda and Roman mm -hmm. I mean, you know, yeah, wow. And to this day, to this day, Lodge is considered one of the greatest film schools in the world. Mm. Uh, I have visited that school a few times. I'm so impressed <laughs> the the high level of teaching and of the alumni. Um, while he was at the Lodge Film School, though, and here's the primary difference. Kishlovsky was living under communism. There was a lack of daily freedom. Whereas Truffaut had come of age um, at a, in France, which was a place of relative freedom and sophistication. Kishlovsky was struck by the fact that movies did not represent the ordinary life of Polish mm. people. He, he actually said at one point, you can't imagine what it's like to live in a world without representation. And what he meant by that was very simply that when people went to the movies, they could not see a mirror of the life they were leading with its petty needs and bureaucracies. I mean, you know, I once asked Kishlovsky about whether he would ever consider himself a, a political filmmaker. He laughed and he said, the day that I can buy toilet paper in a Polish store, then we can talk politics. In other words, politics <laughs> is abstract realm, you know, where governments made decisions. And for him, daily life was the question. How are people living? What do they want? What do they need? How are they frustrated every day? And most of his early short documentaries address those very questions. He made a wonderful documentary called Talking Heads, where he's he interviewed this wide range of people from a baby to a woman who's 100 years old. Who are you and what do you want? Those wow. were the And it's, it's a remarkable cross-section that has nothing to do with politics, although some might say it has everything to do with politics. How, how do we get to watch these documentaries? Are they, are they, are they available of Kishlovsky's? Talk, Talking Heads is available. It's part of one of the Criterion collection. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, some of his shorts are available on YouTube. I think Talking oh, Heads is on YouTube. Talking Heads is definitely on YouTube. Oh, that's um, lovely. 
believe that some of the others are as well, but I would be hard pressed to tell you exactly which ones. You'd have to type in Kishlovsky early documentary shorts or just documentary shorts and see what pops up. Um, yes. And, and I, I don't want to oversell them. His early documentaries, they're good, but they're not great. They, for me, when I finally got to see them, um, this would have been in the late 90s, I realized that had I watched them in real time way back, you know, let's say in the late 60s, early 70s, would I have assumed that the maker of these documentary shorts would become the Kishlovsky of Three Colors, Blue, White, Red? No, no, mm -hmm. I never would that. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, this is very gratifying for my film students to know that they <laughs> not great work initially at film school, but hey, <laughs> 20 years later, they may be masters. Um, wow. You don't have it in your very first work. It can yeah. grow. <laughs> yes. can yeah, it's, it's very gratifying. Absolutely. Ma'am. Also, I heard about this uh, while reading excerpts from your book about this, another documentary that he was making with soldiers and they had become blind during the war and he and he asked them to interpret their dreams yeah yeah byłem żołnierzem is the polish title i was a soldier mm -hmm. is the wow. title of polish i remember being very moved mm -hmm. by that documentary um i mean at that time more so than today it was rare for films to even deal with disability it was kind of shunned. You know, people didn't want to talk about those who had lost something. But Kishlovsky had a deeply sympathetic or compassionate view of human beings. Even if there was a constant sort of irony that coexisted with the lucidity, um, you know, he, he, he put his camera in front of people that he believed had something to share with those who watched at the time and those who watch today. Sure. I think we're running out of time, your time. I would quickly plug in uh, my last two questions. Uh, one about Miss Jacob, where just, just just her being an actor, working with Kishlowski, if you would like to sort of uh, say a bit, I, I was reading some excerpts from your book, that the scenes were sort of not, they were not, they were not, like a beginning, middle, and end. They could be more like montage scenes, scenes like the actor touching a tree or the transparent spear. And how did he possibly explain that to 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 an actor? And was she convinced? And how did she get the feel while she was give, giving takes on these these scenes? Well, I remember her saying, I, I'm, she actually wrote the preface to my book, Double yeah. Lives. <laughs> yes. You know, she said that when she would ask Kishlovsky a question, he would always say, make it simpler. In other words, you would think that a director who had some kind of real philosophical sophistication or who was interested in metaphysics might be telling actors to do something, oh, elaborate in order to convey a world. No, he understood that the best way to convey anything universal and or deep, is to make it simple and accessible and personal. He would have her just do things the way she would do them in real life. And very often directors brilliantly communicate with actors by not telling them exactly what to do and how to do it, but by inviting them to bring aspects of their own being into the role. So I think the great collaboration between them, and by the way, 
It's also a great collaboration that he had with Juliette Binoche for mm. Three Colors Red, with not only Julie Delpy, but Spigniew Samachowski for Three Colors White. And don't get me started on his <laughs> collaboration with Jean-Louis Trintignant, who plays the crusty judge in Red, because I, for me, Trintignant is one of the great actors of yes. time. And by the way, another coincidence, if you wish, uh, with Truffaut is that Truffaut's very last film, Confidentially Yours, starred Jean-Louis Trintignant, just as Kishlovsky's last film, Red, starred this brilliant French actor. Wow. And, it's eerie. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, he, he said that with, Trintignant said in an interview that Truffaut would very often give him the direction to do something faster, to talk faster. In other words, there was a, a kind of quicker pace that he wanted in his films, where Kishlovsky did not. Kishlovsky allowed for a more languid pace to slow things down so that it would register on the screen. Wow, wow. And of course, there's this little trivia that, again, I re read from your book excerpts, was that he watched Citizen Game Kane hundred times, one of my favorite films, by the great Wells. Any anything anything you would like to share about his passion for watching films, or a few other trivias of his that you know All our right. listeners would love to know. I'm going to be honest about something though. Yeah. The, real, the real passionate cinephile of this conversation was Truffaut. Truffaut, from his childhood on, saw as many films a day as he could, and, and made lists where he wrote down the titles of films, the names of their directors. I mean, he was truly obsessed. Film became a kind of alternate universe because he had a, an unhappy childhood. Mm -hmm. With Kostovsky, it's a different story. He wasn't even that keen on becoming a filmmaker when he entered mm -hmm. the logical school. It was almost like he, uh, he was <laughs> so angry that he had been rejected twice by the school that he tried a third time and was intent on going just to prove them wrong, you know, that, that he did have the talent. But he did not spend all his time watching films, despite the, you know, story about Citizen Kane. Um, in fact, I'm going to share with you that very often he would be asked at press conferences while I was translating, who are your favorite filmmakers? And get ready for how he always answered. <laughs> Shakespeare, Camus, <laughs> Tolstoy, Falk. <laughs> that wow. was his answer. Wow. Because yeah, Kishlovsky was very well read internationally. Wow. I think Camus is a very important writer for him. Wow. And um, so he did not manifest that kind of passionate cinephilia, at least in his statements, for which mm -hmm. Truffaut had been known. For Kishlovsky, watching films was not the be-all and end-all. And in fact, he refused to call himself an artist. He insisted that if anything, he was an artisan. The distinction being, wow. as he said, that an artist has the answers, an artisan poses the questions. Beautiful. Beautiful. Wow. Wow. That's a great, great, great perspective. So that's it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this interview. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Go watch all of Kishlovsky's work. Till then, have a great weekend and count your blessings.